Turn your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Luke. We're preaching through the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter by chapter. I remind you again, if you want to follow along with your pastor in his preaching and teaching, just read a chapter ahead of me. Next week will be Luke chapter 9. Study it. Ask questions about it. Try to figure out what pastor is going to focus in on. Let it be a blessing to you. I love preaching through the Bible. It's so easy for us preachers to be topical preachers and just preach on whatever topic interests us. When we preach through the Bible, we must preach what the Bible tells us to preach. And that's what happens as you go through the book of Luke. And uh, God's blessings be upon you for being faithful through the snow this morning. We took a couple out to lunch last week from the church, and I thought to myself, man, I wish I had the ability to take everybody out to lunch and, and, and fellowship with everybody here at Lakeside. And so today we're going to do that. But it's going to be Dutch treat because I can't afford to pay. But we're all going to join together. Anybody that wants to join us, Lakeside Mall, and uh, reserve tables uh, around the carousel and just look for us. I, 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 of course, have to greet people as they go, but as soon as I'm done greeting, I'm going to hightail it on over there, and I'd love to get to know you better. Okay? Everybody understand? Got it? And if you can't make it this time, we're going to, just, we're going to do this like at least once a quarter and, and just have a lakeside lunch together at the mall in the eatery. And, uh, uh, again, it's Dutch treat, uh, just so there's no misunderstanding. Praise the Lord. Luke chapter 8 within your Bible this morning. If you don't have a sermon uh, study guide, raise your hand so you can follow along with me and the ushers will serve you this morning. Praise God. Uh, 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 Detroit City Slicker moved up north. A Detroit City Slicker moved up north and, and uh, he wanted to be a farmer. And so he, he went to a, a chicken hatchery and said, I want a hundred chicks. They said, why do you want a hundred chicks? He says, I've decided to become a chicken farmer. And so he purchased a hundred chicks as they sold it to him. It wasn't long after that that he came back. He said, I want a hundred more chicks. They said, wow, a hundred more chicks you just bought. You just purchased, you just procured a hundred chicks. He said, I, I know, but I, I need a, a hundred more. They said, why? He says, I think I planted the last batch too close together, and I need a hundred more. I knew I should have used that other joke that I wrote. <laughs> Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8 is a chapter that begins with Jesus giving a story. And many of his stories were quite comical. Uh, a story about farming. It's a farming story. Jesus is teaching the story, which is so familiar to many of us, the story of the sower and the seed. You remember, Jesus in the sower of the seed talked about four kinds of soil. The seed was the same. Jesus shared in this story a parable. 
Jesus shared that some of the seed fell upon the wayside, the pathway, the hardened ground. Then Jesus said, as the sower was sowing, because the sower, the farmer, would just throw out the seed and it would fall wherever. Some of the seed fell on thin soil. Jesus said next that the sower of the seed, as he threw out the, the seed, that some of the seed fell on thorny soil. Soil that was full of weeds and, and, and thorns. Then Jesus shared, some of the seed fell on good, productive soil. And the wheat that grew up was fruitful. It was productive. The fourth kind of soil. Disciples didn't understand Jesus' classroom teaching. I call the Gospels many times Jesus University, and, and the disciples didn't completely catch what Jesus was trying to impart. So look at Luke chapter 11, verse 8, verse 11. Jesus says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it. But they have no what? Root. You know people like that? They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. You know anyone like that? Verse 14, the seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. And they do not mature. Hit home with anybody? Verse 15, but the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. Luke 8 reveals that Jesus, being the teacher of teachers and wanting his disciples to indelibly learn the powerful truth that he was trying to teach here, he took the disciples out of the classroom experience. He took the disciples out of the teaching experience and introduced them to the field trip experience. How many remember field trips when you went to school? Didn't you love them when the teacher took you on field trips? My daughter, uh, she teaches in a school that really believes big time in a lot of field trips. So she does a lot of field trips and, and understand she's keenly aware of the importance of education that comes through getting out of the classroom, the laboratory, into the reality of field trips. To understand much of Luke chapter 8, you need to write on your Bible in Luke chapter 8, field trips with Jesus. Luke chapter 8 is one of the most exciting chapters, not just even in the Gospels, but in the Bible. And what's the truth behind all of the field trips? 
that Jesus is taking his disciples on. Lord, Lord, would you put that title on the screen, please? Lord, there is only, there can only be one. Lord, who is Lord? Jesus is Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask and pray even now this morning that, Lord, you would reveal truth to us. Speak to our hearts, Lord. God, we're not looking just for another ordinary Sunday. Lord, rescue us from routine. Rescue us from the ritualism of religion. Lord, we want to experience your lordship in this service this morning. Amen and amen. Let's look at Jesus' field trips for his disciples in Luke chapter 8. Follow along with me, fill in the blank if you would please this morning. The first field trip that Jesus takes his disciples on is a Sea of Galilee cruise. Oh, many of you would love to go on a cruise right now. Jesus took his disciples on a Galilee cruise. He tells them to go to the other side. And notice this, they obey. They obey. Many of you are walking in obedience right now and stuff is happening to you. And you wonder, why is stuff happening to you while you're in obedience with the Lord? Well, Jesus took them on a field trip and they obeyed and stuff is about to happen. As they sailed away on this Galilee, the Sea of Galilee cruise, the Bible says that Jesus laid down on a pillow and fell asleep and suddenly the gospels report to us a squall a storm rose up on the sea of galilee this was no ordinary storm that you'll find out in a minute this was no ordinary meteorological uh, weather channel type event this was more than a natural storm i'm convinced this was a satanic storm. The Bible says that the storm was so furious, so horrendous, that the waves began to build up. The waves began to crash over the bow of the ship. The waves, the water began to flood the ship. Many of these disciples, I remind you, were seasoned fishermen. And even them, these seasoned men, these hardened fishermen, they were terrified and they scream out, wake up Jesus! Don't you care about us, Master? Wake up! Jesus woke up. The Bible says that he looked at the storm and the Greek word is epomeo. Epomeo. He rebuked the storm. That Greek word is only appears in the Gospels where Jesus casts out a demon. I am convinced that with many scholars that it was a satanic storm. Satan was trying to kill Jesus and his disciples. The suddenness of the storm. The ferocity of it. What you're about to hear in Luke chapter 8, it all comes together. Satan is trying to kill Jesus and his disciples right there at the onset, right at the beginning. But Jesus uh, stands up in the midst of the storm and says, Peace, be still. That's the King James Version. 
that I love so much. But the original Greek, basically Jesus got up in the middle of the storm and said, shut up! And again, the Greek is so interesting. In the Gospels, the storm did not gradually subside. The Greek is the original language is very precise, an immediate calmness. It was like flicking a light switch. The wind stopped. The waves went flat. And the disciples are left on their first field trip with their mouths hanging wide open. And Jesus also was a bit amazed. Why was Jesus amazed? He looks at his disciples and says, where is your faith? And that's a right question to ask when you've got God in your boat. The disciples, awestruck, said, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey his word, his command? I'll tell you who he is. He's the Lord of, of every storm. He's the storm king. He's the prince of peace who can speak in any storm of your life or my life. Peace! Be still! Because he's Lord. He's more than Savior. Jesus is Lord. I want you to be aware this morning for those of you that are going through storms. You've walked as a Christian in obedience to the Lord. You have followed his command to go to the other side of the lake. But you have, you have suffered. You have suffered. You have suffered a terrible storm. I want to remind you, God does not promise us the absence of storms in our Christian lives. But he has promised peace in the storm. And, and listen, just because you're suffering a storm, that's not the issue of the hour. The issue of the hour is this. Who's in your boat? Who's in your boat? If you're alone in your boat, then I am worried for you. I am fearful for you, rightfully so. But if you got Jesus in your boat, if you have the storm king, the Lord of lords in your vessel, there is no fear. He continues to speak to every storm. Peace. Be still. Peace. Be still. Who's in your boat? Jesus' second field trip. Jesus' second field trip for his disciples is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Writing down the Gerasene shoreline. The Gerasene shoreline. Uh, this is a very remote region in ancient Israel. It's an area dotted with caves and tombs. It's an eerie, haunting place, even in the daylight. No sooner had Jesus and the disciples landed in this region when, can you imagine, a, a shrieking wave followed by maniacal laughter pierces the darkness. A shadowy figure is seen howling in the twilight. This zombie-like creature lives in the caves, in the tombs of the rotting dead. Corpses 
were the only ones that could stand to live with him. Luke reports in his gospel that this monster, he would repeatedly cut his body with sharp stones, as so many do today. Sad to say, among young adults and teenagers, until the blood would stream down his filthy naked body. Several times this, this primitive Jekyll and Hyde would be chained. He would be fettered by the officials and he would break the chains like paper mache. Suddenly it's this half man, uh, half monster that, that's running straight at Jesus. But as soon as he comes within the presence of Jesus, it's as though he hits a force field and he falls at the feet of Jesus in complete submission and surrender. What's going on here? Collapsing to the ground, this hellish creature cries out in Luke 8, 28. <laughs> Luke 8, 28, what do you want with me, Jesus? Son of the most high God, I beg you, don't torture me. Jesus looks at this wretched soul. Jesus says, what is your name? The demoniac cries back, legion, for we are many. What does that mean? Mary Magdalene, the Bible says, which is delivered from seven demons. When this man said, I am legion, for we are many, he had more than 6,000 demons inhabiting his person. And the demons begged Jesus not to order them into the bottomless pit, but to go into a herd of pigs, and he gives permission. The demons possess the pigs. They rush over a cliff into the sea. Luke 8, verse 35 reports, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet. I want you to note that. Where's the demoniac? Where's the one that is possessed, this half-man, half-monster, that could snap any fetter, any chain? Where is, he, where is he at now? He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's crucial for you to understand. He's dressed, and he's in his right mind. We sang about that this morning. He's in his right mind. This man was so changed by Jesus, the Bible says he wanted to be Jesus' disciple. He wanted to get in the boat with Jesus and his group of Christ followers, his disciples, and spend the rest of his life walking with Jesus. But Jesus said this to him in verse 39. Jesus said, go back to your family. Tell them what a wonderful thing. Look at what the Lord has done, we sang this morning. Look at the wonderful thing that God has done for you. So he went all through the city telling everyone, about Jesus' mighty miracle. I want you to be aware there's two basic mistakes that people can make concerning Satan and his demons. You can overestimate their power and look for a demon behind every bush. You, you know any Christians like that? I remember when I was in Bible college, 
years ago, we were walking in the men's dorm room, and as we were walking down the hallway, we heard this terrible racket. It sounded like somebody was bashing a refrigerator against a wall. And at the same time, they were screaming out, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you. We couldn't figure out what was going on. We came around the corner of the men's dorm, and here was a guy trying to cast a demon out of the Coke machine because it wouldn't give him his change back. He, he, he was convinced there were demons in the Coke machine. Two basic problems I find in the church with those that are in relation to the demonic and Satan's power. We overestimate and we blame everything on the powers of hell or conversely on the other extreme, those that walk in complete unbelief and look at Satan and his demons as the stuff of fancy fiction. Uh, they look at it, it as the stuff uh, of Halloween. Even some commentators, Bible commentators, uh, have written that this man who cries out, we are legion, they write it down to being uh, schizophrenic paranoid. They say that this was not that which was of the supernatural, but typical natural mental disorders, insanity. then how did he know Jesus' name? How did he know that Jesus was the Son of God? And what was it that went into the pigs? That's always my argument. No, this, with anyone with a logical mind that reads the scriptures, this was, its source again was satanic. The source, again, is from hell. I want you to, I want to serve you notice, Satan is very, very real. A very real Satan appeared in the beginning and took a third of the angels in rebellion against God. A very real Satan tempted Adam and Eve. A real Satan possessed Judas. A very real Satan will possess the Antichrist at the end of time and challenge Jesus Christ himself. Very real Satan showed up this past week in the news. If you've been watching your news, in Pennsylvania, a 19-year-old girl, 19-year-old young wife and her husband through Craigslist killed a 40-something guy, luring him just to kill him. Put a personal ad in Craigslist just to kill this 40-something-year-old guy, this young, young couple. The source behind it, they're finding out she claims to have been a part of a satanic cult since age 13. She is claiming dozens upon dozens upon dozens of murders. It's horrendous. It's terrible. A very real Satan is in these United States of America as I speak at this hour this morning. And some are fighting a very real, very real Satan in their homes and marriages as I preach. Ephesians 6.12, Paul reminds us we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against persons without bodies, the evil rulers of the unseen world, those mighty satanic beings and great, 
great evil princes of darkness who rule this world and against huge numbers of wicked spirits in the spirit world. I'm convinced that Satan, again, was trying to kill Jesus and his disciples. Round number one was the storm in the Sea of Galilee. Round number two is Satan's demonic Superman. But Luke reports Satan's demonic Superman was sitting. <laughs> where? At the feet of Jesus, where all demons belong, under the feet of Jesus. This man is clothed. This man is in his right mind. Uh, does the enemy have power? Oh, yes, the enemy has power. Unimaginable, uncomprehensible, unreal power. Never forget that. But remember this, the devil has no authority. He has no rights uh, to attack your life. Uh, only Jesus has all power, all authority in heaven and earth. There's no human monster that's been spawned in the laboratories of hell that Jesus' power and Jesus' love cannot deliver. Hallelujah. Perhaps you're watching this video this morning. Perhaps you have caught this video cast on our website. And I want to speak to you right now. It doesn't matter how perverted, how addicted. It doesn't matter how much of a reprobate that you have become. I want you to know that it's not hopeless. I want you to know that Jesus can deliver you. Jesus knows right where you're at right now. Jesus is your only hope. Jesus is your only answer. He is Lord over the storms. He is Lord over the demons. He is your light. He is your salvation. He is your Lord. Let him remove your shame. Come and bow at his feet. He'll clothe you with his love, his kindness. He'll give you a right mind and a right heart. Only Jesus is able to take what was intended for evil and turn it to the good. Only Jesus is Lord. Can I hear an amen? Would you give him praise and glory this morning? Mark it down, Jesus' third field trip, Jesus' third field trip with his disciples was to return to Capernaum. There Jairus, the president of the local synagogue, begged Jesus to heal his 12-year-old only daughter who was dying. It's interesting, the Gospels report this story, not just Luke, Matthew and Mark also report this event, but Luke is the only one that says this was Luke's, or this was Jairus' only daughter. Only daughter. And she's dying. Luke makes special emphasis that as Jesus and Jairus were hurrying through the crowds, Luke makes special emphasis that they had a squeeze through the pressing crowds. The crowds were thronging so heavily in the narrow streets of Capernaum that everyone was rubbing shoulders with Jesus. They had to squeeze literally through the crowds to get to the house of Jairus. As they were quickly going to that desperate need of a 12-year-old girl that was dying, there was a woman in that crowd that also had a need. There was a woman in that crowd that heard that Jesus had landed at the docks. 
There was a woman who had heard that Jesus was a healer, a worker of miracles. And the Bible says that she thought within herself, if I can but touch the hem of his garment, I will be made whole. What was her need? What was their need? her need for 12 years? This woman had had, the King James Version says, an issue of blood. She had a hemorrhaging problem, a bleeding problem for 12 years. Do you understand what that meant? It meant that this woman suffered financially. Luke's Gospel, the other Gospels report that she had spent all that she had on doctors and she was no better for it. Anybody relate to that? She suffered financially. She spent everything. But to complicate the matter, she's in a Jewish society. According to the Levitical law, any woman with a constant hemorrhaging problem was considered defiled, considered unclean, ceremonially defiled. That meant that she was quarantined from all of her friends. That meant that she was isolated from her family. Anyone that touched her, anyone that she touched was also defiled. I did some research, I'd never seen this before, but it also, it also pretends that she was divorced from her husband because in Jewish society and tradition it was thought that a woman with this condition was being unfaithful to her husband, so undoubtedly she was also divorced. This woman is suffering a psychological, deep-rooted sense of abandonment and rejection that goes far deeper than her physical suffering. But to add insult to injury, she was quarantined from the house of God. She could not worship God in the synagogue. She could not worship with the people of God. She feels as though God has abandoned her. This is the woman. This is the woman that's pressing through the crowd. Anxious, anxious, anxious to touch Jesus. All of a sudden, Jesus is walking in the crowd and Jesus all of a sudden stops with a startled look on his face and says, who touched me? Who touched me? Peter and the disciples looked at Jesus as though he was out of his mind. Peter actually says, who do you mean who touched you? All kinds of people are touching you. All kinds of people are rubbing shoulders with you. Jesus disregarded that comment and said, who touched me? Someone deliberately touched me for I felt healing power go out from me. The woman comes and bows at his feet and confesses. This is what I love about the power of our Jesus. This is what I love about the love of our Lord. Jesus is not only able to take care of the physical. That's, that's for, the, for the mind of God, that's easy. The physical, the natural. It's the emotional, the psychological, the spiritual that's the most deep-rooted. And as she bows at the feet of Jesus and confessing that she had touched him, Jesus looks down and says in the next verse, Daughter, your faith has healed you. <laughs> this woman who had ceremonially defiled Jesus, he's not worried. He says, Go 
in what? Peace. Do you need the peace of God this morning? Do you need a miracle this morning? Reach out and touch him. There are two different kinds of people that come to church every Sunday. There are those that are content with mere contact with Jesus. There are those that will settle to rub shoulders with Jesus. Then there are those that come that are hungry for God. There are those that have come with expectation. There are those that have come expecting a miracle, knowing that he is able, knowing that Jesus is Lord, Lord over the storms, Lord over sicknesses. And they come and reach in and press into the God's presence. They're anxious. They believe it. They're ready to receive it. That settles it. And they reach out and believe for their miracle. And they receive it. Are you content to just rub shoulders with the Lord? Or will you reach out and touch Him as He passes by? Excuse me. I got the most startling email this week that has so blessed me. I get other kinds of emails that can be disappointing and discouraging. This was an email that blessed your pastor, I'll tell you, so much. You see, James chapter 5, verse 15 in the Bible says, the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. Either we relegate that to 2,000 years ago, or we embrace the truth that the Lord is still in the healing business today, the miracle business today. It was a number of months ago that I ran over to Saint used to be St. Joe's West, now it's Henry Ford West Hospital, and there the dear daughter of our members, Rob and Rachel Korth, Angela Korth Blanzi, and her husband, Mike, they introduced to the world and to us their new little baby, Ella Grace. Usually, it's a very joyous, joyous occasion, and it was. But there was deep consternation with this birth because little Ella Grace was premature. In fact, she was two months premature, and she weighed only two pounds, 11 ounces. You could hold her within the palm of your hand. The baby was immediately transferred downtown to Henry Ford Hospital, Detroit, neonatal intensive care unit. And there, a specialist gave the first bad diagnosis and told the young mother and father, Angela and Mike, I am diagnosing your little baby girl with cerebral palsy. The next expert that came in and gave a diagnosis, the diagnosis went from bad to worse. The next diagnosis informed this young couple and the family circle 
that only a small portion of the brain had formed. The rest of the brain was missing. That the senses would not operate normally. That this little, <coughs> excuse me, this little baby, this little child would never recognize her mother, never recognize her father. The motor skills would never work properly. Of course, the family was crushed. But the family circle decided to reach out and touch Jesus. Great-grandparents who walk with God. New grandparents that walk with God. Young, young couple with their first baby learning to walk with God and trust God began to pray and reach out and touch Jesus. I was asked as their pastor to come and pray, and so I went downtown to Henry Ford Hospital and there brought the anointing oil and anointed little Ella Grace with the anointing oil, and we prayed the prayer of faith over her. Ella Grace with the oil that represents the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to read to you, I want you to see on the screen the email that I received this week from Rob Korth, the brand new grandparent. When the specialist examined Ella, he said that she shows no signs of cerebral palsy and all of her movements and reactions are normal. She responded to all of his visual and hearing tests. The biggest concern has been the size of her head as at first it was not growing. We prayed over her several months back specifically about this and we have noticed that the head has been growing. The doctor compared her current head size to where it had been and said there has been a noticeable change. While it is still on the smaller side, it is within the lower side of the normal range and appears to be growing on the curve in proportion to her body. He said that this is good news, great news, and he was supposed to see her in 30 days but said he will not need to see her again for another 90 days. On the way into the building, Rachel and Angela, grandmother and mother, ran into the doctor and the head nurse that had cared for Ella while she was still in the intensive care unit. They recognized Angela and stopped in the hall and they just couldn't believe how great Ella looked. They knew the prognosis that was given over this baby and when Angela filled them in on Ella's progress, they kept using words like amazing, incredible, unbelievable. Sounds like words that describe the work of our Lord, doesn't it? They told Angela that seeing Ella had made their day and they were glad that they ran into them as if it was by chance. Let's give the praise, the glory to God. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad there's only one real healer? There's only one real great physician. Jesus, our only Lord. Lord over the storm. Lord over the satanic. Lord over sickness. Write it down. We can imagine Jairus' faith skyrocketing as he is seeing the woman who touched Jesus healed but then a messenger arrived this is just how the devil works a messenger arrived saying your daughter is dead don't bother the teacher anymore 
But Jesus said, don't be afraid. Just believe. Write that down. And she will be healed. She will be healed. Arriving at Jairus' house, who's already there? Who's been camping out at Jairus' house? You need to read between the lines. The professional mourners who had been camping out at Jairus' house hoping that the girl would be dead. Because they, in that day and time, would get paid to wail and mourn and to weep and to cry when someone died because the funeral was always the same day. They're already there ahead of Jesus. Jesus walks by them and says, the girl's not dead. They begin laughing. It's right there in Luke chapter 8. They begin mocking with derision. Jesus' diagnosis. Jesus says, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. By the way, some of you that have lost loved ones to death, in the mind of God, they're just sleeping. Hallelujah. There's no believer that ever dies in the Lord. In fact, they're more alive now than any of us in this room. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Jesus comes into the little girl. And this is where Luke slips into the Aramaic and says, Talitha kumai, little lamb arise. And the little girl comes back to life as the Lord of life, the Lord of the resurrection and the life speaks living life into her. I ask you this morning, what has the enemy has said? What has the enemy said that is dead in your life? He's a death dealer. He's a doubt peddler. Jesus, when He went to raise the little girl back to life, what did Jesus do? He got the mourners out of the room. He got the doubt dealers out of the room. He even got most of His disciples out of the room. And He just brought in the parents and Peter, James, and John with Him. And that's when He was able to speak life in the context of faith into the little girl. Some of you this morning, the enemy is saying your finances are dead. Some of you, the enemy is saying your, your employment is dead. Your, your health is dead. He's whispering in your ear and he's saying your marriage is dead. Your children are dead. You've lost your children. They're going to hell. It's all dead. But what can the believer do? The believer who hears old Slewfoot whisper in their ear, the believer, the Christian, the committed Christ follower can take their stand and declare, because He lives, because my Jesus lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future and life is worth the living just because He lives. Enemy, you're a liar. My Jesus is alive and I'm moving into my miracle because I'm a resurrection believer. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There's nothing in this life that the enemy can whisper to your, in your ear and say it's dead. It's over. It's gone. It's useless. It's hopeless. As long as our Jesus is alive. And the stone has been rolled away and He is resurrected and risen from the tomb. The supreme question. Look at your notes. Look at the screen. 
So what was the connection? I'm giving you a good Bible study here this morning. I've never seen this before until I did research. What was the connection between Jesus' farming parable? We're only 25% of the church. Only 25% of believers who hear the Word are real Christ followers. What is the connection between His parable and the four field trips? What's the connection? There's a powerful spiritual truth here that I don't want you to miss. Write it down. Jesus' field trips proved He's the Lord over disaster. He's the Lord over the demonic. He's the Lord over disease. He's the Lord over even death. The worst that Satan can throw at you, Jesus is still Lord. And there is none other. Many have claimed the title, but only Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Don't let the snow quiet you this morning. Give Him praise and glory. Jesus is Lord. And there's no other. Hallelujah. But this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the preaching begins. But the supreme question is not, is Jesus Lord? The Bible proves Jesus is Lord. You know Jesus is Lord. The real question is this, but is He your Lord? Can you truly say, Jesus is the Lord of my life? Can you truly say it? Can you truly say it? Did you hear about the chicken and the pig? The chicken and the pig heard that it had been a tough winter in Michigan. The chicken and the pig heard that it had been so tough, so tough, so tough on the farmers. The chicken and the pig said, we've got to do something to help out the Michigan farmers. So the chicken said to the pig, listen, listen. I'm going to offer the farmers some eggs to help them out. Pig, why don't you offer them some ham, some bacon? Pig, his eyes got real wide. Not so fast. For you, that's a contribution. For me, that's total commitment. Is Jesus really the Lord of your life? Is Jesus really the Lord of your life? Mark it down. The greatest threat to the church today is not the New Age movement, not an anti-God culture, not a morally bankrupt society. These are not the greatest threats. The greatest threat to the church today is not a threat from without, but a threat from within. The greatest threat to the church today, the church of the living God, is a half-hearted, lukewarm Carnal Christianity. Carnal Christianity. Would you write that down? Carnal Christianity. Carnal Christians, to go back to the parable of Jesus, carnal Christians are the hardened soil. Carnal Christians are the thin soil where there's no root, there's no foundation to spiritual lives. Carnal Christians are thorny soil Christians. Oh, yes, they're alive. But the weeds and the thorns choke out the cares of life, the riches of life, choke out their productiveness with God. 
their walk with God. So in the end, only 25%, only a quarter of the church are mature, committed followers of Jesus Christ. The rest attend church. They hear the Word of God, but they never act on it. They're unproductive. They desperately, they desperately, in any given church, people desperately want to go to heaven. Nobody wants to go to hell. Nobody in their right mind wants to go to hell. Most in the church desperately want blessings, but they don't want the commitment. They desperately want Jesus to be their Savior and take them to heaven, but they're not ready to make Him their Lord. I'm preaching a tough word now. I want to warn you, if I had some fine print, I would write right now, for mature audiences only, is Jesus really the Lord of your life, or have you just settled for Him to be your Savior? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? There's many that are comfortable with Jesus as their co-pilot. You've heard me share it for years. When Jesus is hitchhiking on the road, they're comfortable in stopping to pick Jesus up. Some put Him in the trunk. Some welcome Him to the back seat. Some pat themselves on the back and congratulate themselves because they make God their co-pilot. Honey, He don't want to be your co-pilot. Where does Jesus want to be in the car of your life? Where does He need to be? What's your only hope for real joy, real peace? As long as you're running your life, as long as you're steering the car of your life, your life's going to be a mess. Where does Jesus want to be? Where does He need to be? Behind the steering wheel of your life. Jesus needs to be Lord. Jesus needs to be in control of your thought life. Jesus needs to be in control of your word life. Jesus needs to be in control of your actions. Jesus needs to be in control of what you're writing on Facebook. Of what you're watching on TV. Even if it's, a, even if it's, even if it's basic cable. Walking Dead. American Horror Story. Spawn in the laboratory of hell. No Christian watches those things. There's a disconnect today within the body of Christ where we write things on Facebook and we divorce ourselves from it. Hear me in this. Jesus is not Lord. And I know I'm on a bunny trail, but Jesus is not Lord if you're conducting your affairs and your activities in that manner. I want you to know this is serious business when you make Jesus the Lord of your life. I want you to know being a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ is not for the faint at heart. It takes a real man, it takes a real woman to stand up and say, I will follow Him. <laughs> the cross before me, the world behind me, I will follow Him. Though none go with me, I will follow Him. I have decided. I have decided. I have decided. I did not know what the choir was singing this morning. I did not know what was on the song list this morning. The Holy Spirit put together this service this morning. I could not have asked for a better chorus to be sung than what we heard this morning. Jesus must be Lord of all or not at all in your life and my life. Well, pastor, can you help me? Pastor, how do, you spar, how do you spot, how do you identify a carnal Christian? 
How do you know you've run into a carnal Christian pastor? A half-hearted, lukewarm, faint-hearted, mamby-pamby, mediocre, mundane, miserable Christian. How do you know that you've run into one, pastor? Let me give you some helps. Write it down with me. The carnal Christian's first love, the carnal Christian's first love is self and the things of this world. The disciples' first love is Jesus. 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 Luke 14, anyone who wants to be my follower must love me far more than he does his own father, his own mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters. Yes, more than his own life. Otherwise, he cannot be my disciple. And no one can be my disciple who does not carry his own cross and follow me. But don't begin until you count the cost. So no one can become my disciple unless he first sits down and counts his blessings and then renounces them all for me. Pretty heavy-handed, Jesus. But why can He say that? Because He's Lord. He's more than a Savior. He's Lord. He's Lord. He's Lord. We need to be convinced of that more than ever before. Write it down. Carnal Christians are characterized by inconsistency. While committed Christ followers are faithful. Faithful. A golfer, a golfer. Golfers, get ready. Springs around the corner. A golfer showed up 20 minutes late at his first tee. He was asked why he was late. The golfer said, well, I agreed with my wife. I'd flip a coin. Heads, I'd go golfing. Tails, I'd go to church. I want you to know I tossed that coin 43 times before it came up heads. Carnal Christians are double-minded. James chapter 1, verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all that he does. Disciples can be counted on. They can be depended upon. Uh, committed Christ followers are faithful. Why am I faithful? To my wife, Becky, after more than 30 years, because we have a wedding license? No, no, no. It's because after more than 30 years, I'm more desperately in love with her than ever before. Love for the Lord produces faithfulness. When a Christian shows unfaithfulness to Jesus, it's a tip-off that something's wrong with the love relationship. Mark it down. The carnal Christian's constant prayer is give me a blessing. While the committed Christ follower prays, make me a blessing. When the carnal Christian is approached with a ministry, when they're given an opportunity to serve the Lord at church, they're always filled with excuses. Can't you find somebody else? The committed Christ follower, though, says, do you have a ministry for me, Pastor? Pastor, is there somewhere that you can use me? Oh, don't refuse me. I want to be used to the Lord. I want my life to count for something. I want to make an impact for Jesus. John 15, verse 8, I warn you. Jesus said, this is my Father's glory that you bear, that you bear, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Is, does any man, any woman have any right to call themselves a disciple, a follower of Jesus, if they're not producing fruit? 
not producing fruit. This is to my Father's glory, Jesus said. Carnal Christians, mark it down, are high-maintenance people in the church, while committed Christ followers are team players. They shoulder the burden of ministry. Carnal Christians are dead weight around the neck of Lakeside. Carnal Christians complain that Lakeside challenges them to give their time, to give their talents, to give the tithe. But the committed, committed Christ followers are excited about the blessing, God's work. They want to bless God's work with their all. Carnal Christians, write it down are content with merely an intellectual experience of God. But committed Christ followers want more than a head knowledge. They want a heart knowledge of Jesus. They want to know Him. They're desperate for God as we preached last week. They want to press into His presence. They want to walk and talk with Jesus. We're talking intimacy here. Intimacy. Carnal Christians. Committed Christ followers. Write it down. Carnal Christians worry about what the world thinks. They're always worried about popularity. They're always worried about acceptance. They're always worried about the kids at school, what they're going to think. They're always worried about what other people think. Committed Christ followers worry about what God thinks. What God thinks. God thinks. Outside of church, there's no real difference between the lifestyle of carnal Christians and the world. If push comes to shove, the carnal Christian will always, always default to compromise. Always become the hypocrite. Christ followers want to go where Jesus goes, though. They, they want to say what Jesus says. They want to do what Jesus does. Because Christ followers are sold out and radical for Jesus Christ. They're committed to Him. They want to be what Jesus would have them to be. You see, there's three types of Christians in the world today. There's the rowboat Christians. They have to be pushed. There's the sailboat Christians. They always go with the wind. Then, praise God, there's the motorboat Christians. Uh, they go, they make up their minds to go where God wants them to go. Amen? They go against the flow. They go against the current, regardless of wind and weather. Jesus said in Matthew 16, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Excuse me. Number seven, what does it all add up to? Carnal Christians might know Jesus as their Savior, but only committed Christ followers know Him as their Lord. Their Lord. Their Lord. Remember, blessings are promised only for the faithful. Remember, rewards are only passed out to the faithful. Many will come in that day saying, Lord, Lord, I preached in Your name. Lord, I taught in Your name. Lord, I healed in Your name. Lord, look at it in Luke chapter 10. I cast out demons in Your name. But Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I know you not. I know you not. The wise, committed follower of Jesus Christ 
is aware and alert of the times and the seasons, the Bible says. Paul the Apostle said to the Thessalonians, I do not need to speak to you about the night because you are people of the day and you know the times and seasons in which we live and that the soon return of the Lord is fast approaching. Christian, wake up, wake up, wake up. Christian, what do we find going on in the news right now, even this morning? Russia invading, invading the Ukraine. It's as though my childhood and my young teen years is being relived all over again when we saw and witnessed Russia invading Hungary, Russia invading Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union, the empire growing of communism, and we're seeing it repeated all over again. And everything, everything like a jigsaw puzzle is coming together in biblical prophecy. And what is it all moving us rapidly towards? On that midnight hour, that twilight zone hour called Armageddon, where the Bible says in Revelation chapter 19, in that terrible midnight hour, that twilight zone hour of planet Earth, when all hope, when all hope seems to have been lost, and that none, the Bible says, would be left alive. The Bible says in that twilight zone hour when the Antichrist and his armies encompass the earth. At the battle of Armageddon, John the Revelator says, Suddenly I saw heaven opened, uh, and I saw him who sat upon a white horse. And upon his head uh, were many crowns, and he had a vesture dipped in blood. Uh, his name is Faithful and True. Uh, and upon him, uh, upon his thigh was written, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. The Bible says that in one breath, one word, the Antichrist and the false prophet will be cast alive in the lake of fire. And old Slewfoot the devil will be chained for a thousand years in the bottomless pit. And on that day of day, Philippians chapter 2 will be fulfilled. What are you talking about, Pastor? Listen, all have claimed the title down through the eons of time to be Lord, to be the one and true only Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But that title is reserved for only one. Nero tried it. And he threw Christians by the hundreds and thousands in the Colosseum, torn apart by wild animals, lit them as torches in his gardens. You see, every year you, when you paid taxes in Rome, in those times, you had to announce that Caesar is Lord. The early Christians, the first century Christians would say, Jesus alone is Lord. And they would be condemned to die because of it. Nero is God. Jesus is alive. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Not long after, not long after, Roman Emperor Diocletian erected a pillar that said, and it's inscribed upon it. You can look at it today. Inscribed upon the pillar of Diocletian are these words. For having exterminated the cause of Christianity. 
Jesus' church is alive and well. Diocletian is dead because Jesus is Lord. Glory to God. In the 19th century, French philosopher Voltaire said that at, before the end of his life, he will have destroyed everything that Jesus and the apostles built and that the church would be obsolete, the Bible would be antiquated. Less than 50 years after the death of French philosopher Voltaire, his house was turned into a Bible publishing company. <laughs> Don't you know God has a, a humor? Hallelujah. God always has the last laugh. Jesus is alive. His church is alive because Jesus is Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, I could go on and on and on. John Lennon who said, the Beatles are more popular than Jesus now. I wonder what John Lennon is imagining with his song, Imagine, right now where he's at. Madeline Murray O'Hare, many of us remember, she took prayers out of the public school. She ended up being murdered as somebody sought the money of the atheists. Jesus is alive. Jesus is the head of his church. Jesus is the head of all creation. Jesus is Lord. We are rapidly moving towards a time where every Hitler, every Lenin, every Khrushchev, every Saddam Hussein, every Osama bin Laden, every Madeleine Murray O'Hare, every Emperor Nero, every demon of hell, even old Slewfoot himself, glory to God, will come on bended knee. For the Bible says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that only Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Christ is Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, you give him better praise and glory than that. Don't let the snow dampen your praise. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy because only Jesus is Lord. Not Muhammad, not Confucius, not Buddha. Only Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Christian. Jesus never called us to be converts. He called us to be disciples. Jesus never gave us the option to settle for carnal Christianity, half-hearted Christianity. He's called you to be sold out, committed, 100% for Him. Salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you everything. But it's worth it. Remember, blessings are only promised to the sold out. Remember, rewards are only passed out to the faithful. Many will come in that day saying, Lord, Lord. But he'll say, I'll know you not. He wants to be more than your Savior. Isn't it time this morning for you to make him who he really is? Jesus is Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask as every head is bowed and every eye is closed, oh, Spirit of God, Come, come, come and plow up, O oh God, the hardened soil. Make soft the hardened heart. Come, O oh Holy Spirit, where there is still time, where there is still opportunity, and forgive us 
of making Jesus just our Savior. Help us to bow at His feet and acknowledge Him as our only Lord. Heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. How many are here this morning? And you would say, Pastor Phil, Pastor Phil, I'm, I'm done. I, I'm done. I'm done playing around with God. I'm done playing fancy free with eternity. I recognize there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And I'm done with half-hearted Christian living for Jesus. I want to be sold out. Heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. Isn't it time that you make Jesus your Savior? But more than that, isn't it time that you make Jesus your Lord? I'm going to pray a prayer, a prayer of salvation. If you want to be included in that prayer this morning, as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, show your faith. Show that you want to be included in this prayer that will give you a home in heaven and make you right with God. Show your faith by lifting up your hand right now. Right now. Right now. Lift up your faith. Lift up your hand if you want to say yes to Jesus. If you want to be included in this prayer. God bless you. I see that hand. God bless you. I see that hand. Number three. God bless you. I see that hand. Number four. Number five. Number six. God bless you. Number seven. I see that hand. Number eight. I see that hand. God bless you. How many more? Lifting it up to Jesus. Number nine. God bless you. I see that hand. Amen. By faith and faith alone, you want to declare Him as your only Savior, your only hope, your only life. How many more you want to be included in this prayer? Lift up your hand to Jesus. Hallelujah. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Keep those hands lifted up. Put your heart into what you are about to pray. Everyone pray this prayer right now. Pray it out loud, especially you that have your hands lifted up. Dear Jesus, I confess you as my only Savior and my only Lord. I declare I have been a sinner. I've been half-hearted. Lord, I have been a mediocre Christian. But Jesus, I declare that you are my Lord and you deserve all of me or nothing. I believe you died for me. I believe you conquered death for me. And you rose with resurrection life. I want that, Jesus. I want a new life, a changed life. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing me, for changing me, for a promised home in heaven. I thank you, Jesus that I'm saved. In the name of Jesus, I pray it. Amen.